Well, if you will, open up your Bible with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. And I want to read verses 20 through 23. 20 through 23. Hear the Word of God. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. Our focus today is going to be on this last sentence of verse 23. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would, again, send your Spirit to help us to focus and, and to walk through these verses and understand what you have uh, written for us uh, through the pen of the Apostle. Lord, I pray that we would be convicted once more of sin, that we would be reminded once more of the great perfections of Christ and of your holy and righteous standard to which you've called us to live. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. For the past three weeks, we've been answering the question, what is sin? Sin laid in wait for Cain ready to overtake him in Genesis 4. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, because their sin was grievous in Genesis chapter 18. In Romans 5, we find out that death entered the world through sin. In Romans 6, we find out that the wages or the paycheck for sin is death. And in Matthew 18 verse 7, Jesus says, Woe to the world! for temptations to sin, or he pronounced curses and judgment on the world for temptations to sin. Now, none of these things are helpful to us. None of these things are educational for us or um, instructional to us if we don't know what sin is, if we can't answer the question of what is sin. And so that's been our uh, endeavor for the past several weeks. We studied first this idea that I've called universal sins, that is, Things that are always sinful for all people at all times in any place. This would be thoughts of the heart or actions which are contrary to God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. It's also universally sinful to know in your mind the right thing to do and to fail to do it. Both of these ideas, sort of a positive and a negative look, and a, a commission and an omission of the same idea, both of these things are always sinful at all times and in all places. These sins are not affected by your circumstances. In other words, this is why we would say that uh, to, to murder an unborn child is not okay in, in a situation where we would be told that it would preserve the life of the mother. It's not okay. Those, those circumstances do not make it right. The, these sins are not affected by one's status or position. It's not okay for a king to have multiple wives just because he's a king or a ruler. These sins are not affected by contemporary culture's opinion on the issue. In other words, if all of the culture comes together and decides this is right and this is wrong, well, that doesn't change the fact that God's law stands. His moral standards remain the same. Universal sins are always sinful in all places and at all times. But today we're taking up this second category of sin, which I've called particular 
sins. Particular sins are actions that are not always sinful in and of themselves. The act might not be sinful, but it is in fact sinful for particular people in particular circumstances, in particular times and places. They, they become sinful, but they're not always sinful. Now you'll remember in the first week that we studied this idea of sin, I read to you two texts of Scripture with regard to this category, and we're going to be taking those two texts over the next two weeks. In both of the, the overall context of these passages of Scripture, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, the overall context is, is basically addressing the same thing. And there will be some overlap in the teaching. A lot of what we read through today in establishing the context will help us next week. But I do want to approach these two passages, I guess you could say, these two areas from two different perspectives. First, the individual approach, and then the corporate approach next week. Now again, what we're reading today, we'll see, has very much to do with corporate sin. But we're looking at this final principle in Romans 14.23b. Just this last sentence. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, in order to understand that primary principle, we have to understand the context of what Paul's saying. And I believe that the verses that I read, verse 20 through 23 sort of established the whole context of the chapter. In other words, at this point, Paul is summarizing a lot of what he said to lead to the driving principle of it all. And so what I want to do is use verses 20 through 23a as the outline to establish the context. That way I don't have to go verse by verse through the whole chapter. I can just use these verses and I'll pull from the chapter here and there to help us understand what's being said. So, look with me then at Romans 14, verse 20a. Paul says, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Now again, if we had read the whole chapter, we would know exactly what he's talking about. But because we didn't, we see this mention of food. And food is mentioned because... Certain beliefs about foods, as well as in the chapter mentioned drink and specific or certain um, feast days were causing division among the believers. If you got your Bible open, you can see Romans 14, the verse 3 verses. Paul says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats, that would be the stronger brother, despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains, that would be the one who is weak, pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. See, Paul is addressing two different groups, two different types of people. First, there is the one who is weak in faith. And this is going to be important. Notice he does not say weak in the faith. It's just weak in faith. He's not fully established. He's weak in believing. Paul's not talking here about salvific faith or saving faith. When he says weak in faith, he's talking about the overall gospel-driven, Christ-centered worldview through which a person approaches every situation and circumstance. This person is weak with regard to that. So, he's writing to the church at Rome. And if you read the book of Romans, there's this constant, um, I guess you could say, a volleying back and forth between uh, Jew and Gentile, uh, Jewish and Greek, and what, how the gospel applies to both groups. In the Roman church, there were both converted Jews and converted Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles both coming from different religious backgrounds into one Christian church. So the Jews would have come from centuries of ceremonial Judaism, food laws, feast days, and the like. 
Gentiles would have come from a background of pagan sacrifice and worship, offering meats to idols and then eating those meats as an act of worship. Now having been converted to Christianity, all of a sudden, both groups would have needed time to realize and comfortably live out the liberties offered in Christ. So Jews, having been set free from centuries of ceremonial rites, would have needed time to rest assured in their hearts that setting aside those things was okay, that they could do that in good conscience. Gentiles would have spent their lives offering food to idols. They would have needed time to come to terms with the truth and rest assured that their pagan worship really meant nothing and that meat, there's nothing special about it at all. It's okay, eat whatever you want. It would have taken time. If somebody felt uncomfortable eating meat, for whatever reason, from either group, that's fine. If he didn't feel comfortable, then it was okay for him to abstain. If one felt better continuing to observe a feast day originally commanded by God and yet abrogated in Christ then it was fine to him to keep, for him to keep doing it. There wasn't an issue there. If he realized, hey, it's okay, I don't have to do this anymore, that's fine too. But it takes time. So to be weak in faith in this chapter is to be in that realm of uncertainty and growth in understanding. You're still, you're still learning, in other words. You're, you're still trying to figure it out. That's weak in faith. Paul says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now this is important. In Romans chapter 14, the issues that are being addressed, we must understand are issues of total liberty. We would call them matters of indifference. They are matters of opinion. There's no clear imperative command with regards to one duty as a Christian in this chapter and the, and the issues that are being addressed. It's opinion. And so he describes these two opinions. One person believes he may eat anything. The converted Jew or the mature converted pagan both might have come to the point where they can eat whatever they want to. The Jewish man realizes, hey, I can eat pork. No big deal. The pagan would say, oh, I can eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. No big deal. That's one opinion. One person believes he may eat anything, but then the other person, the weak person, that is weak in their Christ-centered worldview, eats only vegetables, whether pagan or Jewish. They wanted to avoid eating particular meats. So maybe they would eat no meat just to be safe. Paul says it's perfectly acceptable. There's nothing wrong with them not eating meat. So we come back to verse 20. Paul says, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. That's God's work in saving people from all of these various backgrounds and bringing them into one body and nurturing them into a mature faith. Don't destroy that. Don't welcome the weaker brothers who differ in matters of opinion matters of indifference, just to argue with them about it and cause divisions about it. If you do, the point is, you're destroying the work of God. Don't do that. That's 20A. Then we move to 20B. He says, everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Now when he says everything, of course we, we know that he does not mean murder, He's talking again about things of, that are matters of indifference, matters of opinion, food, drinks, feast days, things not specifically commanded or prohibited in God's Word. He says everything is indeed clean. This is Jewish vernacular for it's acceptable to God. These things that are matters of opinion, ultimately, they're fine. They are acceptable. They're not sinful in and of themselves. But... He says, it is wrong for you to make somebody stumble. It is wrong. If we were to ask, okay, these things are okay, matters of a difference, they're okay, that's right to do, but what is wrong in this area? What is wrong is when you cause another to stumble. Cause another to stumble by what you eat, or the day that you observe, or refuse to observe 
We see this point spelled out in verses 14 and 15 of this chapter where Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So in this chapter, talking about matters of opinion, matters of indifference, the sinful thing are those which cause another weaker Christian to stumble. Paul says if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. From chapter 13 onward into chapter 15, the purpose is loving each other in the church. And so he says, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died with your exercise of liberty. Don't destroy his faith. Don't cause him to stumble in his walk just because you are free to do this or that thing. Verse 21, Paul continues, It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now this is going to be our focus next week. But here's the, the main point of this section again from a positive standpoint. If causing your brother to stumble is sinful and wrong, then what is right? What do we do? It is right not to eat or drink or do anything that would cause them to stumble. Your righteous action is hold back yourself and your liberties for the sake of another. We see this spelled out in verse 13 of this chapter. Paul says, Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 19, Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. That's our goal as a church body. Our, church, or our, li- or our goal in church life is to look to others. Our goal with regard to matters indifferent is to look to others. Our goal with regard to Christian liberty is to look to the growth of others. I'm not second. I'm at least third, if I only know one other person. I'm always last. We look to others. That's how this works. Christian liberty is not taking advantage of every freedom you have and making sure everyone around you knows that you have that freedom. Christian liberty is the freedom we have in Christ to stop doing things that we know are acceptable, we know we can, in order to help another Christian grow in their faith. That's Christian liberty. And if you can't stop doing it for another brother, it's not liberty. It's a pit of bondage. You're in sin if you can't give it up. If you have to hold on to it, and, and yet you call it a liberty, it's not a liberty. It's, it's, it's a chain of bondage. So having somewhat finalized this issue of brotherly love and causing another brother to stumble, which we'll address next week, Paul turns to address the two individual parties involved. First, he addresses the strong brother in verse 22a. He says, The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. So here's another mention of this faith. This is not saving faith. This is not that faith which appropriates Christ in salvation. This is the general confidence you have in the revealed truth of God's Word as it dictates, commands, and explains Christian doctrine and practice in every situation. Faith is knowing based on God's Word how you should act and then acting that way. Notice some of the other language Paul uses in this chapter. In verse 5, he says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Remember that, fully convinced. In verse 14, Paul, speaking of himself, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So he uses this language, I know and am persuaded. This faith is synonymous to Paul here. This faith is synonymous with being fully convinced, knowing, and being persuaded. This faith is a spiritual and mental condition. 
of full conviction, knowledge, and persuasion. Now think about this. Full conviction means you have undergone the process of being convinced fully, without a doubt. Imagine a courtroom. You can't convict a criminal unless all of the evidence points to their wrongdoing, their conviction. Knowledge means you've studied the topic. You know the facts about it according to God's Word. You know what you need to know. You, you, you know. To be persuaded means that you have been pushed from one side to the other by reasonable argumentation. You're persuaded. Knowledge. Full conviction. Persuasion. We've often described faith as being made up of three components. Knowledge, belief, and trust. Saving faith. You must know the truth about Christ. You must believe the facts about Christ to be true. But you must also trust, rest with full conviction on the truthfulness of these facts. Think about how similar that is. Knowledge, belief, and trust to full conviction, knowledge, and persuasion. This is this idea of faith. So Paul says to the stronger brother, that faith you have... And this is what he's talking about. That you know the truth, you believe the truth, you're fully persuaded on the truth, you're willing to rest your soul on this truth. No doubts, no worries, no uneasiness. I am persuaded. That's the faith that's being spoken of here. Now the weak brother that's being addressed in this chapter has not come to that full understanding yet. He may know some of the truth, but he doesn't know all of the truth. Perhaps he's still unsure of some of the details. He may want to believe what he knows to be true, but it's difficult at this point. He's a young believer. He's, he's come out of a, a, a background of, of pagan worship or of Judaism. It's taking him a while to grasp all of this. He's not fully convinced. He's not fully persuaded. And so he can't in good conscience rest his soul on this truth. That's the person who's weak in faith. He's not a lesser Christian. He doesn't even necessarily, he's not even a sinful Christian. He's just unsure about acting on his freedom. He's still in that growth process. So Paul says, addressing to the stronger brother who is fully convinced, fully persuaded on a particular issue, he says, keep that between you and God. It's not something that should come between brothers. It's not something you should cling to. It's not something you should flaunt. Maturity as a Christian does not display itself by showing off all of the liberties you have, but Christian maturity is hiding all of your liberties in order to preserve the unity of the body and ensure that other Christians are growing. That's maturity. It is immaturity to show off all that you can do and still be a Christian. All that you can get away with. That's immaturity. Now why does Paul say, keep that between you and God? In verses 7 and 8 he says, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And then in verse 10 he says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Here's why we have to keep it between us and God. We belong to God. We live to God. We die to God. We will be judged by God. God is not going to hold you guilty for not exercising your liberty. But He will hold you guilty for causing another Christian brother or sister to stumble by exercising your liberty. He says, so keep that mature faith, that freedom you have, keep that between you and God. Don't let it come between brothers Don't let that cause another brother to stumble. In verse 22b, still describing the stronger brother, he says, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Now we would ask, why would I have to pass judgment on myself? Well, again, in 13b, Paul says, Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 15, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Why would we have to pass judgment on ourselves? Well, if your freedom is a stumbling block, if you're grieving your brother, if you're destroying his faith, 
You have ample reason to pass judgment on yourself. You're in sin. You're sinning by doing that. So he says, that faith you have, keep it between you and God. Don't let it lead you into something that you're going to be sorry for later. Now having addressed the stronger, more mature Christian, Paul now turns his focus back to those who might be weak in faith. Verse 23, the beginning of the verse, but whoever doubts. To doubt is to waver between two options. It's not sinful to doubt. It's to be unsure. To doubt is to hold back in uncertainty. It is to continue evaluating an issue. A person who doubts has reason for pause. A person who doubts says, hold on a second, let's just... Make sure. That's the doubting one. This idea of doubt is in direct contrast to the language Paul has already used for faith. Fully convinced. To know and be persuaded. That's the opposite of doubting. The doubting one is not fully convinced. The doubting one is not fully persuaded in either direction. He's studying. He's searching. He's growing. He's just not clear yet. And so he doubts. If he's a Jew, he wonders how after centuries of ceremonial Judaism that God told us to do, how can we just stop? How is it all just gone? If he's a pagan, he remembers, maybe last week, he remembers the emotionalism involved in offering meats to false gods. and He he remembers the exhilaration that he received received when he ate that meat that had been sacrificed to a false god and and blessed by a, a, a priest of that god. He remembers it and he thinks to himself, how could that have meant nothing? So that person, Paul says, they're they're still in the determination process. He doubts. He says, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. He's condemned. He's judged and found guilty of sin against God. And here's the the qualification, if he eats. Remember, it's not sinful to eat. It's a matter of opinion. You can eat, you cannot eat. It doesn't matter. But he says, for this person, he is condemned if he eats. That issue that began as a matter of indifference is neither right neither wrong has become sin. Why? Because, Paul says, the eating is not from faith. He did not act based on full conviction flowing from biblical revelation. He was not fully persuaded by the truth that it was okay. He was still wavering in his mind between two options. Two options that were perfectly acceptable. Both of them fine. But he's judged and he's found guilty of sin because he didn't act out of full persuasion, full conviction that it was acceptable to God. Now both parties having been addressed... Paul now states at the end of verse 23 the overarching principle that governs those who may be weak with regard to a particular liberty. This principle deals with every individual Christian and their own approach to matters of indifference. We're going to come back to this corporate aspect, but today we're just thinking about the singular individual and their own conviction. So look at verse 23b. Here's the general principle. Hopefully all of that we've covered comes in to uh, inform this last statement. This is the focus of the sermon. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever includes matters of indifference. Things that are not in themselves right or wrong. But the qualification again, whatever does not proceed from faith. Whatever does not come out of faith. Whatever does not have as its source faith is, Paul says, sin. It is an offense. It is rebellion against God. It is missing the mark. It is a transgression of God's law. It is trespassing God's moral boundaries. 
Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Even in matters of indifference, where it doesn't matter what you do, if it does not come out of faith, full conviction, full persuasion, based on the Word of God, it's sin. Now again, what is faith? Faith is not blind hope. Like, well, I sure hope this is okay. I hope God doesn't mind. Faith is not what we generally call a blind leap, a leap of faith. Well, I'm just going to do it. And surely God will honor the fact that I'm just going to do it. Faith is not a good feeling. Faith is not saying, well, I can make this work. Faith is not saying, well, if God gets a hold of this, He could really do something big here. Faith is not saying, well, the Bible doesn't address it, so it must be fine. These are not statements of genuine faith. To act out of faith means you are fully convinced based on what God's Word does say. Now, how can we be convinced? How can we know? Well, we look to His Word. We study it. We know what it says. When we know what it says, we're fully convinced that it says what it says, then you would be actually persuaded like a pendulum. You will be pushed into the corner of belief to believe this is morally appropriate. I can't believe anything other than that this is acceptable. It's not saying, well, I can't find anything in the Bible telling me not to do this, so it must be fine. God didn't address it. That's not faith. Faith says, I have ran to God's Word and found everything there to convince me that I'm right before God. Faith is saying, I'm persuaded. If you cannot carry out your actions with that type of conviction and that type of persuasion, but you do it anyway, you're in sin. You're sinning against God when you do that. Now we might ask, how can it be sin if it is truly a matter of indifference? If it is truly a matter of opinion? Well, consider what happens in your mind and your heart when you do this. In these particular situations, these particular actions or deeds, you're not fully persuaded. You're not fully convinced by God's Word that it would be appropriate. That tells us one thing. That tells us that you are at least a tiny bit, even if it's a, a microscopic bit, inclined to believe that it might be sinful. If you're not fully convinced, you think it, it could, there, there's a possibility that it's sinful. It may not be, but it might be. And so to act anyway with that remaining bit of inclination is to say, this may be appropriate and therefore I can do it. Also, it may be sinful and I'm going to do it anyway. It's willful disregard of God's commands. Your desire to do the thing carries more weight in your heart than your fear of the God who destroys both body and soul in hell. Your smile, your happiness means more to you than God's smile. Your frown is more detrimental to you than God's. In effect, you are your own God. In this situation, you have become the arbiter of right and wrong. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, I've got six principles that we can pull out of that. This, these just sort of undergird and help us understand how this works out. The first one, if you get this first one, you've got them all. This, this settles the deal. This is the principle when it comes to matters of indifference. Number one, when in doubt, don't. When in doubt, don't. If you are unsure, don't do it. If you do, you have guaranteed a sinful action. You see, the Christian person lives always before the face of God. Always. Our duty is to please our Master, not ourselves. Our goal is not to just live out every whim and every fancy that we have because we can. Too often our question is, when we come to these matters, our question is, well, does the Bible say that I cannot do this or that? 
When your question should be, does the Bible say I ought to do this or that? You see, we are servants. Servants obey masters. Servants await their instructions. And so if we are considering a particular action or decision, and there is any hint in your heart or in your mind, any glimmer of doubt, your Christian duty is to withhold your action until you are convinced that it is your duty. I'll give you three, three commentators' quotes on this just to, to show you I'm not crazy. One says, Any doubt concerning an action automatically removes that action from the category of that which is acceptable. Another one, Whatever is not done with full conviction that it is right is sinful. Whatever is done when a man doubts whether it is right is sin. Another one, Whatever we do which we are not certain is right is wrong to us. When in doubt, don't. Second principle. Lack of doubt is not persuasion or conviction. There are a lot of areas in our lives that, for whatever reason, cultural, traditional, familial, we don't have doubts whether we can or can do it. We just do it. We've always done it, so we just continue to do it. That lack of doubt must not be confused with faith. The way Paul speaks of it in this chapter, this being fully convinced, fully persuaded, just because you don't doubt doesn't mean you are convinced. Imagine a child about to jump in a swimming pool where his father waits to catch him. Now that child sort of stumbles a little bit. He, he, he holds himself back. He, he nervously trembles. Why does he do that? Does he do that because he believes, well, Dad's not going to catch me. Probably not. He doesn't doubt his father's ability. He's just not yet convinced about his jumping, about the feel of the water, the risk of the water going into his nose, in addition to being caught. He doesn't doubt. He's just not immediately persuaded and convinced that this jumping is not going to be without its costs to him. You see, it's the same with Christian living. Because of cultural norms traditions, because of the way we were raised, we may have no doubt in our mind that a thing is right or wrong until somebody comes and says, I think you should do that. And then all of a sudden, we realize maybe it's not right. Just because we don't doubt doesn't mean that we're acting out of full conviction or persuasion. To be convicted or convinced or persuaded is not the lack of doubt. Doubt is the culmination of negative considerations. You've got all the negative proofs producing your doubt. Whereas conviction or persuasion is the positive compounding of evidences, proofs, truths, and consideration which pushes you again into that corner of persuasion and conviction where you have to say, I'm convinced with Martin Luther. I can do no other. Here I stand. I ought to believe this. I can't but believe that this is okay. That is persuasion. That is conviction. Just because you don't doubt doesn't mean you have been convinced and persuaded. So don't confuse those. Third principle. Our natural tendency is towards sin. Therefore, we will require less effort to be persuaded towards sin and more effort to be convinced of our duty toward God. In other words, it's going to be harder to explain us the right thing and get us to do the right thing than it will be to get us to do the wrong thing. More effort. And when I say more effort, I mean more analysis, more study, more reading, broader reading, more prayer, more counsel from other godly Christians. More effort. When we approach a situation or circumstance and are presented with options... As Christians, we must assume God has spoken and that what He has spoken must be brought to bear on our decision. This goes back to the issue we read about in James when he says, you say today or tomorrow we will go into this town or that town and trade and do business when you ought to say if the Lord wills. What he's saying is you're going about your business like God doesn't exist. 
That's not how Christians do. Christians, in every situation, remember, I'm Coram Deo. I'm before the face of God. He's watching me. He's, he's watching every move that I make. And he's, he's spoken and He's brought something to bear on everything that I'm doing, every step that I take. Perhaps the reason you don't doubt is because you don't realize God has spoken. The reason there's no internal struggle is because you're allowing your flesh to do all the fighting. That's not a battle. That's, that's not a, a war. It takes two sides. That's why there's no doubt. So have you considered what God's Word says about this or that? Have you allowed the Spirit to persuade you? Here's a question most of us need to be asked. Have you ever considered you might be wrong? When it comes to television shows or movies, ask yourself, am I fully convinced that God has no problem whatsoever with me viewing this? When it comes to your hobbies, am I fully convinced that God approves me spending this time in this way? When it comes to my children, am I fully convinced that God's Word tells me that this is how I should educate them, discipline them, teach them, raise them? Am I fully convinced? When it comes to my clothing, am I fully convinced that God's Word has deemed this article of clothing appropriate? Am I fully convinced? When it comes to my finances, am I fully convinced that God will bless this spending of this money at this time and in this way? Do you even ask these questions? Do you bring God's Word to bear on everything? Now, here's what tends to happen. I, I throw out those questions like that and encourage you to ask those questions of yourself. And if you do this, you are immediately labeled a Pharisee. You're legalistic. But notice I've made no definitive statements. I've made no dogmatic positions yet. But I'm saying that as Christians who are governed by God's Word, it's your duty to ask those questions of all of your decisions. Just because a show, a movie, a hobby, a lifestyle choice, a piece of clothing or an expenditure comes quickly to you as appropriate, that doesn't mean you've been persuaded. Just because, well, I just figured it was alright. That's not good enough for the Christian. Well, I just assumed, no, that's not good enough. You must be convinced and persuaded or it is sin. And I believe that what will happen is that you will realize, when you realize God has spoken, and we begin to take these things to the Word of God, many of the things that we do and have always done very quickly move into that area we call the gray area, and they're taken off the table as viable options until you've done your homework. It takes more work, more questioning, more analysis, more reading, more studying to be convinced toward godliness. The fourth principle, gray areas are usually black areas. Gray areas are usually black areas. When we talk about moral absolutes, we often mention things as being black or white, right or wrong. We come to things that are mentioned in Romans chapter 14, matters of indifference, and we say these are gray areas. That, that means they're somewhere in the middle between right and wrong. They're a little fuzzy. We're, we're just not sure. What we mean when we say gray area is that in the broader church, the church universal, there are wise, godly, Christ-centered exegetes who come to this text and they differ. So it becomes gray. This guy, for him, it's black or white. And for this guy, it's black or white. But it becomes gray with regard to the church as a whole. What we do not mean when we say this issue is a gray area is that it's gray to you as an individual. If it's gray to you, that means you're not fully convinced or persuaded that it is black or white. And if it's not black or white, it's gray. If you're not convinced, then it's taken off the table. It's sinful. It's not gray. It's black. Examples of this that have come up recently. Um, the head covering movement. There are wise, godly, biblical, Christ-centered exegetes who would come to the single passage in the entire Bible that mentions head coverings, and they differ. Now to them, if they read it and they believe it, they are convinced they better cover their head. And if you read it and you are convinced, you had better cover your head in worship. But if you're not convinced, you don't have to do it. It's a gray area. 
good one for today. Observance of holidays like Christmas. If you come to the Word of God and you are fully convinced by God's Word that it has absolutely no bearing on your life, it does not matter, it's simply a matter of opinion, then by all means, enjoy it. But if you are not fully convinced, you've got some doubts in your mind, like, well, maybe it's, maybe it's not right. And you do it, you're in sin. Specifics with regard to the Sabbath or the Lord's Day observance, like how do we carry it out? Are my kids going to be playing in the yard or are my kids going to be in the house all day? Well, those specifics, those details, they're not mentioned here. If you're not fully convinced by the Word of God it's okay for your kids to go outside and run around the house, then you better not do it. If you are, turn them loose. Um, in our area, alcohol consumption. Some people are fully convinced and persuaded by the Word of God. They're backed into the corner and they say, I cannot but say it is absolutely appropriate for somebody to drink a drink of alcohol if they want to. There's nothing sinful about it. That's my position. I'm backed in a corner. I can't say anything except, if you want to drink, have a drink. I can't push that on anybody else. And it makes me angry when somebody else is convicted of a different opinion. They twist the scripture to push it on someone else. And again, I don't drink. But my conviction is, I can't say that it's wrong for everybody to drink a drink of alcohol. I can't say that it's wrong to cover your head in worship. Things like that. I can't say it's wrong for you to observe holidays. I can't say it's wrong for you to go to the, have a family dinner on the Lord's Day. These issues come into our lives and if they are gray to me or they're gray to you, they're black. They're sinful. Don't do it until you are fully convinced. And once you are, have fun. Enjoy it. Number five, the actions of other Christians may help you, but they are not the definitive guide to morality for you. Now, very often we look at other Christians, especially other Christians from other places in the world, other backgrounds, and we see the things that they do, and we just assume, well, they're doing it must be okay. It's as if they've done their homework and then they slide it over on our desk and let us copy off of it, and their conviction becomes our conviction. Now, it very often helps. If you're having trouble with an issue, and you see somebody else doing it, say, help me understand. Help me understand how this works, because for me, I mean, I'm looking at you, and I'm seeing the things you're doing, and I'm really struggling to believe that this is what God would have me to do. Help me understand. But that does not mean that it automatically becomes appropriate for us. When our kids say, well, big brother gets to do it, that doesn't work at home. It doesn't work in the church. Paul says, Romans 14, 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. You, in your mind, are fully convinced. So it's your job to do your homework and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But the actions of other Christians and their input may help. And then lastly, and this is, this is I think this is where we need to, to end... The freedom found in God's Word is far more expansive than the pseudo-liberty exercised with a guilty conscience. When we hear a sermon like this, and all of a sudden, I'm hoping, I've been praying, all, your mind is already filled with things that you do, and you're wondering, I, you know, I've been thinking about that, and it's been on my mind, and I was hoping it wouldn't get brought up. And we begin to think, I'm just in more bondage. Because we're Christians, we want to honor God, but at the same time we're fallen, and so we're tempted to think that, well, if I can't do all of these things I like doing, my life is going to just be miserable and boring. So we're caught in this battle. And so you live daily under the bondage of a guilty conscience. Maybe it's acceptable, maybe it's not. You're not sure, but you're going to do it anyway for a quick, cheap, temporal excitement, and then afterwards your true love is going to start pulling on your heart and you're going to have a guilty conscience. You're going to wonder, well, did I sin or not? You're going to pray prayers like, well, God, if I sin, forgive me. If you've got to pray that prayer, it was sinful. When we dig into the truth of God's Word, however, and we do our homework, and we wrestle with issues, and we come out on the other side fully convinced 
fully persuaded that our lives are being lived out for God's glory with no regrets, no guilt, no wondering, no fear. There is a freedom and a liberty found in that lifestyle that the temporal pleasures of the world can never even begin to match because we've done our work. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. But we've got to get with the Spirit. We've got to allow the Spirit to influence and teach us. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. It is our duty as those who have been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, raised to new life in Christ, to set aside our natural, fleshly appetites and live by faith. When Christ ascended into the heavens, He sent His Holy Spirit to dwell in us so that the faith we have in Him as our only righteous Savior would influence and penetrate all of our actions and all of our motives. We don't live to ourselves. We live to Christ. And at the same time, we must remember that we will not judge ourselves. Christ will judge us. And how will we stand in that judgment? The Lord Jesus Christ loved us and He gave Himself up for us so that we could stand and would stand guiltless on that day. Every single sin against conscience where you just weren't sure and you did it anyway Every single sin against conscience, plus every time you knew the right thing to do and didn't do it, plus every time you've ever broken God's law, all of that has been nailed to the cross. The curse has been born to the cross in His body so that we would be released from that curse. And it's at the Lord's table, of course, that we remember and we participate in and we proclaim His substitutionary death for our sins. So as the elements are passed, examine yourselves, as Paul would say, and so come to the table and eat in a worthy manner.